Hidden in a tree-filled Washington Park is a building that is now an iconic representation of Black life in America. Climbing up its iconic steps will lead you to a place to gather for celebrations and film screenings and dance performances and music shows. But most importantly, the DuSable Black History Museum and Education Center is where Black history is archived and saved. This is the mothership of Black museums. We are the oldest independent Black history museum in the nation, founded in 1961 by Dr. Margaret T. Burroughs. Perry Ermer is the museum's president and CEO. She says the museum has continued the tradition that Burroughs once started in her Bronzeville home. And Dr. Burroughs was a real Renaissance woman. She looked around and saw that there was no celebration of Black history, no archiving or record keeping of Black excellence in this country that we basically built. And uh, so she started the museum really around an art collection, uh, her own art collection and things that people gave to her and her own art and artifacts from her travels around the world, especially to Africa. But what about before 1961? What about before Black folks had our own museums? Before we had the DuSable, Black achievement was shown in another way, through expositions. And Chicago was home to an extremely important one. This led a Curious City listener to ask, what exactly was the 1940 American Negro Exposition in Chicago? The answer contains the DNA of places like the DuSable and about how we think about and present Black history, Black achievement, and Black innovation. I'm Ariane Nettles. Coming up, we'll talk about the traditions that were created and threaded through from that 1940 exposition to the present. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Here in Chicago, many people have heard about the Columbian Exposition, sometimes called the World's Fair of 1893. And architecture was important to showing society's innovation. I am Mabel Wilson. Uh, I'm an architectural designer, professor at Columbia University, where I teach in architecture and also in African-American and African diaspora studies. It was the architecture that drew Mabel to studying expositions for her book, Negro Building, Black Americans in the World of Fairs and Museums. The World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago was grand and named White City because of how it was lit electrically at night. Remember, this was 1893, and about 26 million people came to the fair over the six months in what is now Jackson Park. So there were spaces that people could, uh, you know, I call them cities in miniature because there were spaces where people would come and see the future, right, and imagine what they could be. 
But you know who was not allowed to imagine their future there or to come in and have a voice to speak about their accomplishments? Black Americans were never a part of the American past, right? Could not be visible in the present, in the past, barely could occupy the fairgrounds in the present in those moments. Black people could pay to attend the fair, yes. But as far as any other kind of participation, they could only work service jobs. People from around the world came to share their progress, but Black Americans couldn't. And so Black Americans had to think about, well, one, how could we co-opt these spaces and use them for our own interests? And that was true in the fair in Chicago in 1893 with the Haiti Pavilion. Haiti was an independent country, so its pavilion became the only place at the 1893 World's Fair where Black people could gather. It also famously became where Black activists Ida B. Wells, Frederick Douglass, and others passed out their pamphlet titled The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition. In it, Ferdinand Lee Barnett of the Chicago Conservatory newspaper wrote, quote, Theoretically open to all Americans, the exposition practically is, literally and figuratively, a white city, in the building of which the colored American was allowed no helping hand, and in its glorious success, he has no share, unquote. Instead of allowing Black Americans to participate, however, the fair created a so-called color day. So only for one day could they speak and express themselves. This was simply a temporary fix with no intention to actually include them. There was this sense that you couldn't build permanent museums, you couldn't have permanent sites, right, for Black institutions. So instead, the fairs actually served from my research in Negro building as a kind of temporary public space for Black life. And that's why they became so strategic. And then in 1933, the city hosted the Century of Progress Exposition. Notably, there was a replica of John Baptiste DuSable's cabin, the first non-Indigenous Chicagoan, but Black folks were still largely ignored. In fact, there were exhibits that actually made fun of Black people and tried to push untrue, harmful stereotypes. This directly led to Black folks in Chicago deciding to create their own grand exposition, something that would draw people from everywhere and would center on Black innovation and true representation without any hindrance. James Washington was a Chicago real estate developer who got the exposition started. According to a newspaper articles at the time, he devoted five years and traveled 100,000 miles around the country to promote the project. But I think what was interesting about this particular exposition is that you start to see the rise of Black popular culture and mass culture. And you see this very interesting collaboration between a kind of Black business class, people who are running insurance companies and newspapers, you know, people who had a certain kind of social standing in Black communities, and a group of intellectuals and artists who are much kind of more radical, could be Black nationalists or communists. Or, and in this exposition, there was a very curious collaboration and alliance between these two groups to make this event happen. There had been smaller celebrations of Black achievement before, but the American Negro Exposition of 1940 was special. It was massive. 
It was billed as the, quote, first real Negro World's Fair in all history. There were tons of special days. States had their own days, for example. Government officials of all levels supported it. President Franklin D. Roosevelt himself pressed the button from his home in New York to turn on the lights, launching the start of the exposition on the 4th of July. The exposition billed itself as a way to, quote, enlighten the world on the contributions of the Negro to civilization. The goal was to celebrate 75 years since the end of slavery and everything that Black folks have done since then. Black history was and is a part of American and world history. And this exposition was to fully show these valuable contributions. There were performances like The Tropics After Dark, a musical review the Chicago Defender said featured nightclub favorites and was written by famous Chicago Renaissance period writers Arnabon Tomps and Langston Hughes. Artists like Archibald Motley, who was known as a jazz age modernist painter, were commissioned to create work that was specific to Black representation. The organizer's goal was to create the most comprehensive collection of Black art that had ever been presented. And as a representative of Illinois, Motley's contribution was a painting of Chicago's Black Belt neighborhood. But the star of the show was the exposition's dioramas. It was a chance to show Black life as told by Black people. It was a chance to finally reverse the false images displayed at World's Fairs that came before. That's coming up. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. When attendees walked into the exposition at its central entrance, they were met with the court of dioramas. 33 dioramas surrounded a replica of the Lincoln Memorial. These dioramas were so important that they were commissioned to, quote, illustrate the Negroes' large and valuable contributions to the progress of America and the world. The dioramas' themes encompassed everything from the building of the Sphinx and Ethiopians using the first wheel, all the way to the latest school built for Black children. Lestarsha McGarity is the conservator and co-director of the Legacy Museum at Tuskegee University. They were really the capstone of that exhibition, and they represented the first time that Black people had control of their image at that type of event. So they decided to use this opportunity to highlight the global historical contributions of Black people. So the dioramas that tell the earliest stories highlight iron smelting and irrigation and religion on the African continent, and they go all the way through the Harlem Hellfighters in the early 1900s. 
Lestarcia says the reason why dioramas, these three-dimensional pieces, were used to draw people in was because they simply were one of the best ways to show this history to the public, to everyone coming through that entrance. I think because dioramas are so accessible, you don't have to understand art to enjoy them. You don't have to understand the history. It's all encapsulated in this one moment in time that's been documented. So it's really easy for people who maybe don't have as much experience with that history with art to feel like they can access it and can look at it and understand what it is that artist or group of artists was trying to convey. The Legacy Museum has been acquiring these dioramas and carefully restoring them. I think it's really important to know that they were created by an entire group of artists that were working in collaboration and that they were created specifically for that expo. And that was very common for things created for expo to not be um, kept. They were considered ephemeral. So after an expo, it was very common for them to be destroyed or thrown away. So we're really lucky to have them. Even the beautiful murals, paintings, and sculptures that were created by many of the most famous Black artists of the time had no formal place to go after the exposition. Art was given to churches, to schools, and even to the homes of friends to add to their private collections. Painter William Edward Scott, for example, created large murals, but much of these installation pieces are in private homes. So the Black fairs weren't well archived, And that's something Mabel Wilson experienced firsthand. It was easy to research the Columbian Exposition. All of that was available in major museums. The archives are not in one place. Like if I were going to try to research the World's Columbian Exposition, those were literally archival projects. The expositions are very organized. Things are, you know, they're like an encyclopedia, the way they're thought about and laid out and what are called taxonomically rationalized into to these categories. But the remaining pieces of the Negro Exposition and other similar celebrations, not so much. The Black events aren't as well documented, mostly because they didn't have the infrastructure to do that work. Things that were being exhibited and collected weren't going to go into major museums like the, the Art Institute of Chicago or the Field Museum, right? Like there was no place to put these things. And so... The archive of these institutions are just exploded all over the place. And because of that, it can make it very difficult to find the narratives. Even without the institutions at the time, though, Black celebrations around the country continued to be an important part of documented Black life. But this would soon start to change. Before Margaret Burroughs would create the DuSable Museum in 1961, she pulled together a collective of Black artists to create the Southside Community Arts Center in 1940, the same year as the Expo. She explained the artists came together because they had no place to exhibit their work. It opened its doors that December, just months after the exposition wrapped, and its inaugural exhibition included paintings that were displayed there including works by Charles White, Archibald Motley Jr., Margaret Burroughs herself, and so many more. This was all a part of celebrating and commemorating Black history, and it's something Perry Armour of the DuSable Museum says we can't lose sight of today. 
We have a particular responsibility to advocate for black history. When we have states in this country who are trying to limit what people can learn, to limit curriculum, to censor and ban books about black history and by black authors. That echoes the mission of the 1940 Exposition which aims to show Black people's, quote, large and valuable contributions to both American and world history. And Perry says that DuSable is trying to protect that part of American history from being erased. There is no American history without Black American history. You can't separate the two. It would be like trying to pull a thread out of a woven sweater. The whole thing unravels, right, if you don't include our story. And it's just so important to preserve and so important to educate. This is the kind of public education that Carter G. Woodson advocated for, especially when he created Negro History Week in the 1920s, or what we now know as Black History Month. He felt that education happened outside of the classroom, not just in it. And did you know Black History Month got its start in Chicago? Join us next week as we take an audio field trip back to the origins of Black History Month and find out how Chicago played a key role in the celebration of that public education. Curious City is a production of WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. The show is produced by Jason Mark and Joe Dassault. Maggie Civit is the digital and engagement producer. Susie Ahn is our editor. I'm Ariane Nettles. Thanks for listening. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.